Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. I spoke with Jason Kenney, the Alberta Premier, about a number of issues, including COVID-19, the Alberta oil sands, energy projects, the meeting upcoming next week with the Premiers and Justin Trudeau, and the Premier of Alberta calling on the federal government to do away with the carbon tax imposed on Alberta, at least until the Supreme Court of Canada decides if the federal government has the constitutional power to do so. Irina Rybakova, the Deputy Chief Economist for the Institute for International Finance, joined us to talk about what the prospects are for the international economy in 2020 because of COVID-19. They're saying it could be growth could be only 1% globally, and the last time that happened was 2009, and you remember what happened then. Professor Stephen Hopshin-Kan from the University of British Columbia Public Health School joined us to talk about what may lie ahead as far as the communities in our country are concerned and recommendations, perhaps even edicts, from government officials as COVID-19 continues and the impact of COVID-19 is felt. Daryl Bricker, the CEO and President of Ipsos Public Affairs on Canada's public mood which is turning a little more sour with the developments of COVID-19. Some of what's on the podcast today. Premier of Alberta, Jason Kenney. We had an interview scheduled with the Premier last weekend. It's our problem. We couldn't make it happen. Premier, thanks very much for agreeing to come on today. Uh, Good to be here, Roy. Let me start, first of all, with the story that's getting a tremendous amount of attention in, uh, in, in your province and is reverberating across the country, and that is you suggesting that COVID-19 might uh, not allow you to balance the uh, budget, the Alberta budget, by 2021. Speak to that, please. Well, we don't know the full impact of this, obviously, Roy, but it, it appears from most of the uh, epidemiological data that uh, we're closer to the beginning than the end of this wave of global infections. And what we do know, though, is that it it has already and very severely affected the global economy. Uh, It appears that this will be the first year uh, in that we know of statistical history where there's a decline in global oil demand. Um, And uh, obviously that means decline in, in commodities generally will affect the Canadian economy. We see that reflected in the price of oil. Uh, it's down. Uh, West Texas Intermediate was trading uh, around uh, forty dollars, and uh, uh, discussions between OPEC and Russia broke down a couple of days ago. There are some indications that they actually intend to increase volumes in the face of shrinking demand uh, in order to try to uh, essentially punish the U.S. shale gas industry. I know that's a I packed a lot into that, but, but we follow these prices very closely in Alberta. They affect um, our entire economy and our fiscal bottom line. Um, it, it, we've had the worst uh, two weeks in stock markets around the world in uh, since 2007. So this is very serious. Uh, obviously, we want to hope for the best, but we should all prepare for the worst. I spoke earlier with the uh, Deputy Chief Economist for the Institute for International Finance, and uh, they have a lot of sway, as you know, internationally. And they told us that the global economic growth for this year may only be 1% which is the lowest since 2009. That doesn't sound particularly encouraging, although they do see the odd potential silver lining in that cloud. But a 1% global g- growth in, in economy is, is very concerning. 
Well, hugely concerning. I mean, look, there's a lot of different um, uh, projections coming out of China, which obviously affects the whole uh, global economy. But, uh, I mean, some projections that they may go into negative growth for the first time in decades. Um, but what we do know is that this situation is affecting the global economy seriously. Um, as I say, we, we, we all hope that effect will be short term, but um, uh, there are there are considerable headwinds ahead of us and uh, uh, huge reduction in, 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 in global travel, in flights that will affect uh, airlines, the tourism industry, both here and abroad. Um, and and uh, so so we are very concerned. Uh, it, it's it's kind of frustrating for us in Alberta because we've been through five years of economic decline in stagnation already. Uh, and it looked like 2020 was going to be a turnaround year for us. I still hope it will be. We've been projected by the conference board and banks to be uh, one of the fastest growing economies in Canada, Canada this year, um, supposedly about 2.2% growth. Uh, and um, we, uh, we're looking forward to that. But, and we're doing all the right things we can in policy to make that happen, reducing the tax rate on employers, reducing red tape, um, much more actively promoting investment. A lot of new investments starting to move in this province, but uh, it, it is possible that we will be sidetracked by a significant global economic downturn. Premier, do you find it helpful that uh, voices from Toronto are telling you how you should run your government and how you should uh, <laughs> deal with uh, taxes? And if only you did things the way the rest of the country would uh, is doing things, you'd be billions in the black. Do you find that really helpful? I think you may be referring to the Toronto Globe and Mail that ran a an op-ed this past week saying. If only Alberta were to tax at the same level as the rest of Canadian provinces, it would have a surplus and not a deficit. And I, I replied, if only Alberta were to spend at the same level of other Canadian provinces, we'd have a large surplus instead of a deficit. The worst thing we could do in the midst of, of real economic fragility would be to add a, a multi-billion dollar tax hike on working families. You know, basically what they're implying is we should impose a I guess about an 8% sales tax on this province, that would take about $6,000 a year out of the pockets of, of ordinary families and households. Um, at a time when people have already seen a steep decline in their incomes and um, we have stubbornly high unemployment, you know, uh, that's a recipe um, to inflict more economic pain on Alberta. So thanks, but no thanks to the Toronto Globe and Mail and certain know-it-all Laurentian elitists we're trying to dictate to Alberta, and at the same time, they're telling us, many of these columnists from Toronto and Ottawa, that we should, quote, uh, move away from uh, our oil and gas industry. Well, guess what is Canada's single largest export industry? We export more Canadian energy to the U.S. and the rest of the world than we do in the value of cars made in Ontario or airplanes made in Quebec or anything else. Um, and, uh, you know, the entire Canadian economy would be... Uh, you know, we would lose 10% of our economy overnight yeah. if we were to shut down the Alberta energy industry. It's ridiculous. Premier, I spoke last weekend with Laura Lau of Brompton Corp in Toronto, who manages some $2 billion in assets. And we talked about the, uh, the oil sands, and we talked about tech, Frontier Mine, and the company deciding it wasn't going to go ahead, largely because of the regulatory uh, morass that awaits anybody who tries to develop energy in uh, in this country. Here's uh, I asked her if it was the last nail in the coffin for inventors, investors rather. Here's a little bit of what she said. We've had time and time again uh, the government not supportive of projects and whether it be oil sands projects or even pipeline projects because we need to get the oil to market. 
and it's been very difficult to get any big energy projects off the ground in Canada. That's somebody managing $2 billion. I'm sure you hear that over and over. Well, Roy, I've heard that from people managing uh, hundreds of billions of dollars. Uh, And, um, I mean, there were just news stories uh, this past week about uh, a the largest uh, equity fund in the United States apparently pulling out of a, a, a multi-billion dollar transaction to support an LNG, liquefied natural gas export project out of Quebec. I was going to raise that you know, with you. Yeah, here you've got, as I've said to Justin Trudeau, uh, Roy, we have all 13 provinces and territories from east to west and left to right, every partisan color that has expressed support for massively increasing Canadian exports of liquefied natural gas to create jobs and wealth and tax revenue here and reduce global greenhouse gas emissions by accelerating the thermal coal uh, to natural gas conversion for power production around the world, especially in the developing countries. You've got virtual unanimity in favor of that amongst um, Aboriginal groups in the country, including, for example, the 20 elected First Nations councils in northern B.C. that support the uh, Coastal Gas Link project. Uh, and you've got New Democrats in New Brunswick and Liberals on the East, I'm sorry, in the British Columbia and, and Liberals on the East Coast and the soft nationalist government in Quebec all support LNG. So we thought that project, Energy Saguenay, um, was a real opportunity to show, and I said to the Prime Minister, to show, to, to create national unity for all of the contention around issues about energy and the environment, here is one point of virtual unanimity, a country-building, wealth-creating, job-creating concept. But we have international investors leaving because of rail blockades and the inability or unwillingness to um, ensure the rule of law. So uh, she is right to to say that, and uh, we have seen, um, I think the latest count is something like $150 billion dollars of, of prospective investment in major energy projects cancelled in the last five years uh, under this federal government. And, 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 and interestingly, just last week, the week that tech uh, cancelled its frontier mine proposal, uh, Vladimir Putin announced $150 billion of planned new capital investment to develop Siberian uh, oil fields. And two months ago, Russia opened its, I believe, $100 billion massive gas pipeline to China. So, you you know, I, I, again, so many of these, these, these columnists in, in, in Toronto and Ottawa, Montreal, saying that, 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 that uh, there's a flight of capital from the oil and gas industry uh, and that Canada should just wake up and walk away from the industry. No, there's not a flight of, of, of capital away from the industry. There's a flight of capital away from Canadian jobs towards the production of energy in places like Russia and an OPEC dictatorship. Saudi Aramco is getting ready to do its first uh, uh, initial public offering yeah. of shares. Premier, let me get you... Tens of... Let me, get you, let, me get, let me get you to hold on for a second, because we're going to come back on this. But we also have uh, China, which continues to build huge numbers of coal-fired energy plants, uh, while tech is so discouraged by what's going on with the uh, with, with the regulatory realities, and even though they spent a billion dollars on it, and reaction by or non-reaction by the federal government, you know, speaking to, talk, talking between the lines. While that's going on, um, while China's doing that, they're also getting a license from the government of Canada uh, to explore for oil off the shore of Newfoundland and Labrador. That just makes my head hurt. 
you're meeting with the Prime Minister, you and the uh, fellow premiers are at least, I don't know if you're meeting or having a conference call, but a number of issues that I know you're going to raise. One of them is the actual fiscal fiscal stabilization program, equalization program. What are you going to say to the Prime Minister? What does What do you want from him? Well, we have the support of all 13 provinces and territories for a very specific request that they retroactively lift the arbitrary cap on something called fiscal stabilization, which is like an equalization rebate for have provinces when they see a sudden decline in revenues. We should have received about $2.6 billion from the federal government for that when we saw a 20% decline in our revenues back in 2014, 15, 16, but we received instead $60 million. So we're, you know... Given that the feds are not going to change equalization anytime soon, this is one way they could show a bit of fairness to the province that has paid a massive share of the national bills in recent decades. When it comes to the issue of the carbon tax imposed by Ottawa on Alberta, on Saskatchewan, and I'm looking at your provinces particularly because neither one returned or sent a Liberal MP to Ottawa, you're telling the Prime Minister it's time to remove the carbon tax until the Supreme Court of Canada makes a decision, correct? Yes. Okay, that's a good answer. And that's based on the uh, on the Court of Appeal in Alberta saying to uh, the Trudeau government, you don't have that constitutional power. In a very strong 4-1 to decision, uh, clearly asserting that, that uh, the federal carbon tax is, quotes, a constitutional Trojan's horse, unquote, that represents an unprecedented violation of provincial jurisdiction under the Constitution. So... Um, it was a stunning rebuke of the federal uh, carbon tax that is punishing people for driving to work and heating their homes, and we hope the federal government will respect the court. So back to this uh, Quebec LNG project for just a moment. Warren Buffett stepping back from investing $4.5 billion, I believe, and that's going to hurt. Um, but Quebec doesn't Quebec have ultimately the final say on whether this project gets built, as opposed to Alberta having the final say on tech, for example? Well, um, I, Do I have that incorrectly? You could, yeah, I mean, the federal government's, I'm not sure what regulatory role they would play, but I will say this, the government of Quebec supports the Energy Saguenay project very strongly, right. and we hope to find a way to work with them to keep it alive, despite this unfortunate uh, withdrawal of a potential investment capital. Okay, what I was getting at is Quebec may have a decision-making power that Alberta didn't. Yes, no? Well, let's put it this way. When uh, New Brunswick asked uh, Prime Minister Trudeau to revive Energy East, after it had been cancelled, Prime Minister Trudeau said to New Brunswick, you've got to get Quebec's permission first. In other words, Prime Minister Trudeau gave to Quebec a unilateral veto, a political veto, over an intra-provincial pipeline, which the Supreme Court of Canada recently affirmed on the B.C. case, is a matter of exclusive federal jurisdiction. In other words, infrastructure that goes between provinces, like pipelines, um, that's a federal responsibility, but the government of Canada has surrendered that uh, with respect to one province, Quebec, for oil pipelines. Premier Kenny, I've heard from a number of uh, Alberta residents after I promote you'd be on the air with me, and uh, quite a few actually. And the question that comes up again and again is, would you ask Premier Kenny why he's at war at war with Alberta's doctors? What do you say to that? Well, we're not. Um, to the contrary, we want to continue compensating uh, our physicians at the highest levels in Canada. Our uh, budget for physician compensation uh, this year is $5.4 billion, the same as it was last year. 
So we're not actually proposing the diamond cuts for physician compensation. The problem, Roy, in, the, in this province is that um, the government has had basically no control over how much physicians bill. So we've seen a near, nearly 300% increase in physician compensation over the past 18 years, massively faster than the growth of the population, of inflation, of the economy, of the number of patients. And um, physicians in Alberta bill, on average, about $94,000 more per year than they do in Ontario. They bill more than in any other province. All we're asking for is the ability better to manage those expenses, because if we don't, if they continue to grow at their current speed, they'll go up by another $2 billion that we just simply don't have. We're broke. We've got an $8 billion deficit. Um, at private sector families have seen their incomes go down on average by about 8% in the past five years. Ordinary public sector workers have seen a, a freeze for the past four or five years. But doctors have continued to see significant increases in their gross billings. We value our doctors. Um, they do essential work. We think they should be paid not just fairly but generously. But for the time being, we can't afford massive annual increases. We just ask them to work with us in more doctors going to like contract-based compensation All right. uh, as opposed to fee-for-service. One last question for you. You're endorsing Aaron O'Toole as leadership for the Conservative Party of Canada. Why? I think he is uh, the best candidate uh, to uh, to win. I've worked with Aaron when he was Veterans Affairs Minister. I was National Defense Minister. Uh, we need a leader who speaks French or speaks both official languages. And in my judgment, he's the only first-year candidate that does. Um, he, I, I've never known him to make uh, political mistakes. Uh, he uh, uh, has a great background as a former Air Force officer, um, as somebody who's worked on Bay Street and understands uh, business at a, at, at a at, and the economy. Okay, uh, who represents a suburban Toronto riding? I think that uh, he's um, he and he's a principled conservative who understands right. the need to maintain the breadth of our coalition. Joining us on the program is Irina Rybakova. She's the deputy chief economist of the Institute for International Finance. Ms. Rybakova, thank you very much uh, for the time, and, and I try to explain what you do, but specifically, what does your organization in, uh, do as far as establishing what's going to happen economically globally is concerned? Thank you so much. Well, we are. this is a unique shock that is affecting a large n- number of countries, but it's also affecting countries that are particularly integrated into the global value chains, into global provision of services, capital flows. So I- it is a new world. You know, you might remember that we have recently been talking mostly about the end of multilateralism, but this shock reminds us just how integrated we are together, and that's why the impact, the potential impact on growth is just so significant. So how How has and how significantly has COVID-19 affected the global economy already? Well, we're already seeing early shutdowns. And of course, in China, you have seen the most recent uh, PMI numbers. PMI numbers are often a good gouge of economic activity, what to expect for the real numbers later on to come out. And those have plummeted. Those are close to the global financial crisis levels. Um, so this is already on the real impact. And you see shutdowns in Europe, you see shutdowns, shutdowns in China. Um, a lot of people are maybe back in their homes in China, but they're not definitely back at their workplaces. And that will be a while before they come back. And also as the, this, the infections spread, you're having the sort of the, the continuous effect. You have other countries entering the same cycle, but with a lag. And we're going to see more and more 
economic shutdowns. You could have some places already where schools are closed down and therefore people have to stay at home. So this direct impact we're already beginning to feel now. And of course, you explained very well in the beginning that the financial sector impact is already uh, very visible. And it will take time for that financial sector impact to also have an impact on the economy. So what I found also particularly interesting, and I think even the layperson who uh, doesn't have a significant uh, detailed grasp of what happens economically, internationally, I'm one of them, uh, the, the, the layperson is going to look at um, projections from your uh, institute that global economic growth for the balance of 2020 might just be 1%. We haven't seen that since, if I'm correct about this, we haven't seen that since the financial crisis 11 years ago. Is that correct? You're absolutely correct. This is the lowest forecast we have since the global financial crisis. So what does that mean and then, in, in real terms? What is that? And you just talked to us about closures and shutdowns and economic fallout that's already happened. But in real terms, what does a 1% growth of global economy mean? Well, I have to say that while we're very cautious with our our forecast, we actually have some optimistic, you might be surprised to find out, assumptions uh, underlying it. Please. Imagine that. (laughs) What we're forecasting now is that the shutdowns will be particularly severe in the first quarter, especially from China, and we have revised our Chinese um, growth number down to as low as 4%. But then we will have more shutdowns in quarter two globally. But then we're assuming a somewhat of a V-shaped recovery, that things go back to normal in the second half of the year. Uh, and we might even have some catch-up in economic activity that would compensate a little bit for this very slow beginning of the year. So in a way, our forecast is even somewhat optimistic. Of course, any forecasts are highly uncertain. And we had some of our colleagues put, down, put out you know, this, the top 10 scenarios. You know, so we need to treat these numbers with caution. But I think the first, the, the most important way to look at this is it is a supply shock. You, me, you know, anybody who has uh, sort of uh, lockdowns at work or maybe is having kids at school, staying at home, we will be forced to be staying at home and not actually producing. And that automatically brings down growth numbers. So uh, the next question that has to be, are world governments and national banks able to respond effectively or are even if they if the positive and I, I love the positive aspect that you're talking about it even if that happens are governments and national banks able to respond quickly and efficiently some of them are still suffering fallout from 2009 indeed and i think that's where the irony comes in that we need to work together uh in terms of the central banks is of course much easier um they can act very swiftly we have seen fed reacting but albeit that hasn't calmed down the markets um, for the fiscal policy, for the budgetary spending to coordinate that, that will be extremely challenging. And if it is in this, it is a supply shock, meaning that we're producing less, monetary policy will not be able to help meaningfully. And I think maybe that's why, you know, the, the emergency cut by the Fed hasn't sort of been welcomed for long by the markets. We need a coordinated fiscal policy, budgetary policy response. And I think that will definitely take time. And that is a little bit disturbing. Okay, and with the projections that you have in place and what you're looking at, are you factoring into that the potential for significant higher impact, greater impact of COVID-19 in the months to come? Indeed, we do, we do implicitly assume that in our forecast we, as, as we extend this sort of the negative economic impact to the second quarter. So by doing that, we assume that you will continue sort of the, having this direct drag 
on the economy into the second quarter. We're not assuming much yet in terms of the foreign policy, of, sorry, so the, the common or joint policy response. Um, on the G10 monetary policy, we're close to exhausted. We're, we could be very, we are almost are effectively back to zero bound. There is not much more that Fed can do. It is really time for fiscal policy to take over. I understand. Thank you so much for the time. Good talking to you. Hope you'll come back. Thank you. Professor Hopshinkan, thank you very much for the time. And uh, given what the they're facing in King County, just across the border from you, are the measures they're taking to be expected? Yeah, I think uh, what they're doing is reasonable. Um, you know, they're not uh, closing down any major events, but they're asking people to work from home if they can. Um, and people that we know may be vulnerable to more severe disease from this illness, they're asked to stay away from situations where they may be likely to, to catch it um, because it's simply not known how widespread it is within the community there. And this is something that we should also be uh, preparing ourselves for in this country, yes? Well, we did have uh, the provincial health officer in BC report this morning that um, there seems to be an outbreak in a long-term care center here in BC. Uh, so, we're kind of facing a similar situation to what they saw in Washington where, you know, uh, vulnerable subjects are being exposed and, you know, we're trying to contain that. From a general perspective of public health, once the virus is entrenched, and it seems to be certainly in some parts of the world, um, more so than others, are we equipped to test everyone with symptoms or even those in identified risk groups? And let me take this back home to Canada. Do we have what's necessary to do the testing that's necessary? Um, well, we're trying to regulate uh, how much testing we can do, but uh, you're still trying to focus on um, people of concern. Like if somebody can stay home and self-isolate if they have cold symptoms, um, you know, they may not require testing. We don't necessarily need to test everybody with cold symptoms, but certainly, um, you know, like with this care home, there's a healthcare worker that was positive. Now, um, you certainly want to focus your resources on testing all the um, individuals in that care home and people that have visited them and, you know, anybody that turns up positive. And I think there's a couple of uh, residents that have turned up positive. You know, they're close contacts you'd want to test as well. So when we're talking about testing, are measures that are being taken and which may yet be undertaken, as, again, as far as testing is concerned, are they essentially Hail Marys until we actually see something working? Um, well, that's the thing. I think we've seen in a lot of uh, regions that, um, you know, there are people that have tested positive and we don't really know how they got the condition like we don't it's not somebody that traveled to iran or china or italy um, so there's a number of these cases that are turning up in a lot of regions where we don't really know where the origin was mm -hmm. and so basically at that point you're just trying to prevent the spread within the community so you're following up those individuals and anybody they might have come in contact with to try and slow the spread of the disease it's really a puzzle at this at this juncture. Um, I was thinking this morning, as I was going through some notes, just my medical notes from previous interviews, 
And I came across the t- statistics, and it's, it's a well-known. We've, we've done programs on this. Six million Canadians have no family doctor. So if they're feeling something, just generically feeling unwell, these Canadians will often go to overcrowd- now overcrowded hospitals. Um, does this pose a significant risk? Are we prepared for, for large numbers of people who are concerned about what they may be experiencing as far as respiratory challenges are concerned or a cold or a flu, going to hospitals for testing? Are we prepared for this? Well, I think the hospitals are prepared in terms of, like, keeping people with cold and flu symptoms isolated from, you know, people that might have other things like a sprained ankle or something like that. So uh, you're limiting the spread, uh, you know, when they're coming to a health institution like that. Um, So these are kind of things that that have been thought about, you know, before this epidemic was widespread. Um, And sort of, yeah, it's something we have to keep uh, being diligent about. But we also have to think this is kind of becoming a team effort that, you know, anybody that has cold and flu symptoms, um, you know, should self-isolate and make sure that they, you know, if they can work from home or whatever, just try not to spread the uh, infection until they've recovered from that. And, um, you know, if there are any concerns, they can phone public health and get get immediate advice for that. What would your advice be to people who are saying, well, I wonder if I should go to the gym. I love to go and work out. It helps me physically. It helps me uh, emotionally, but I don't know if I should. I wonder if I should go out for dinner. I don't know if I should. Uh, what's, what's the generic advice at this juncture? I think people don't have to be worried about it at this stage. I mean, you just have to be careful. If you're going to the gym, you know, you want to make sure that you're cleaning surfaces and washing your hands. Um, You know, if you notice somebody experiencing cold symptoms, maybe it's time to leave the gym. Um, But, you know, if you're an individual that may have, maybe at higher risk, such as an elderly individual, or you have some underlying health conditions, you know, you may think twice about going into um, a public situation where you're uh, with a large gathering or in close contact with other people. Mm-hmm. What's primary? What's of primary significance um, to you and your fellow experts in public health delivery and public health monitoring? What are you focusing on? Uh, well, focus is really um, trying to trace everybody that, uh, you know, a positive case has come in contact with and also trying to keep uh, people aware, you know, that um, because there's been community spread, um, you know, you should not take, you know, even if you seem to have a mild cold, you shouldn't take that lightly. You really should uh, self-isolate because we really don't know at this stage whether it is, you know, an ordinary cold or not. And, you know, for a lot of people, even if they have COVID-19, they'll often experience very mild symptoms and maybe not suspect that they have a disease that could be more severe in somebody with a weakened immune system. Daryl Bricker, our good friend and president and CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs, international polling firm, we do a tremendous amount of work in uh, in Canada. Of course, uh, Daryl is a resident of Toronto and 
Um, it, as you know, we, we, we spoke last weekend about a poll that Ipsos had conducted of people globally and their views and their concerns about COVID-19. Where are their concerns? It has to do with the issues that are fiscal more than health at this particular point. Uh, and Daryl also uh, wrote a commentary. You'll find it at globalnews.ca. The spread of coronavirus casts shadow over Canada's public mood. Daryl, it was seems like yesterday we were talking about heading toward a federal election, and then we were talking about uh, development of the oil sands, and lurking in the background, probably mid to late January, we started to hear about the coronavirus, and that's that's all anybody wants to talk about now. Thanks so much for joining us today. Always a pleasure, Roy. Thanks for having me on. So your, your poll, let's talk about the poll first. Before we talk about your column, they actually work together, but what... Canadians fear COVID-19 will do to them. Is their fear more financial than health at this juncture? Surprisingly so. Um, so uh, when you go out and you ask people, it's almost like concentric circles. So what do you, what do you, you know, what's on your mind right now? And it's basically the economic aspects. Uh, so we ask people, uh, you know, where do you, how do you think this is going to affect you? The financial implications are about 37%, which was up 20 points over the space of a week. So it's gone up quite considerably. Uh, but when you take a look at whether or not people are concerned about themselves becoming infected, it went from 5 to 8%. So uh, what we're seeing is that people, you know, the, when, they, when they take a look at this, it's like financial implications, maybe national implications, but not really implications in terms of the health of their, them or their family members, at least not at this stage. So maybe that's the uh, the fact of the message that we're receiving over and over that the direct health threat from COVID-19 at this juncture for Canadians is low. That's resonating. But the concern about financial realities is huge. You and I talked not long ago about the fact that 48% of Canadians now are within $200 and not being able to make their monthly bill payments uh, so, so now, if you ha- if you add financial concerns about COVID nineteen, that just exacerbates the situation, does it not? Well, yeah, especially when you confirm it with the places that you normally look to see effect or impact. So, the stock market's been whipsawing back and forth um, over the space of the last couple of weeks. Uh, we've had warnings from uh, uh, our central bankers who have actually cut interest rates. Uh, they hear announcements every day about. Uh, about companies warning about earnings or warning about uh, events being canceled or uh, preventing their employees from doing what they used to do, maybe having them work from home. Uh, you know, government impacts, uh, for example, uh, potential for closing schools and that kind of thing. So they sit back and they say, you know, those effects are real. I can see them because they're actually happening. Yeah. The health ones, I'm sort of seeing on the news, but I don't really see anybody in my neighborhood or I don't know anybody personally who's been, been affected by this. So the health ones I'm kind of downplaying at the moment, but these other ones, they're for real. Now, how does uh, the opinion in Canada among Canadians about the concerns about COVID-19, how does that compare to the residents of the other, I think it's nine countries that you polled on this very issue? Well, the closer you get to China, uh, so Japan, for example, or Korea, it's a lot more personal. Uh, It's a lot more people thinking that it could affect them and their families. Uh, They're obviously seeing the implications right outside the front door in comparison to what we're dealing with in Canada at the moment. So, for example, in Japan, uh, 
a fear of personal infection is as high as almost as high as it is for uh, the financial effects. So um, when you go there, uh, that's what you get. Italy, for example, looking more like Japan or or South Korea. But many of the other countries that we looked at, places like you know the United States, Great Britain, France, uh, Germany, they're not feeling it to the same. They, they look more like Canada than they look like those other places. Yeah, I just had actually a, an email yesterday from someone who's going to be a guest on the program tomorrow from the United States and said, I'm not really concerned about the coronavirus because I have a great deal of uh, uh, belief in our public health system. And I wonder how much of that actually also plays into the uh, the sense of, of 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 an acceptance that this this thing is happening and my concern is financial rather than health uh, yeah and your your polling actually shows that what is it a majority of Canadians don't place this time the finger of blame on government no uh, they don't they really look at this as kind of like a random almost unpredictable type of an event so we asked them for example do you think that uh, this is happening because the spread of it is basically unpredictable or because we failed to control it. And in Canada, it's over 70% of us think it's because it's it's a fairly random type of an event and it's very difficult to control. So it's not like they can turn around and say to a government at this stage, hey, you didn't do your job. Uh, so on that one, um, the government's not really being uh, punished in terms of Canadian public opinion. By the way, nor, nor is it being praised. Um, so uh, we'll uh, we'll see how that transpires over time, uh, but uh, at at the, at the present time, people see this as something that's kind of in the air that's getting closer. Let me ask you this, and I, I want to ask you the question so I don't forget: When you talk about a spike of twenty points in a very short period of time, a week or two weeks, what does that represent to you as an international pollster? That's that's a, is that a huge number for such a short period of time? Absolutely huge. Uh, I, uh, I think I wrote in the, my article, I, I said, you know, there's only three things that I can ever remember having this type of an impact on public opinion. Uh, one of them was uh, 9-11. Uh, the next one was the financial meltdown in 2008. That was more of a global thing, less of an impact on Canada, although Canadians were worried at the time. And then from a specific Canadian perspective, in recent times, the 1995 national unity referendum so uh in, in the province of quebec so this is one of those ones that's it's, it's beyond just like something that's just quickly coming and going uh it, it that the, the issue actually might be quickly coming and going but the reaction has been emphatic and large when does the numbers start to shift do you think where people start to be more concerned about their health than about anything else what has to happen as far as that concern? Is there, is there an indication that comes out of that in the in the poll? You there, Daryl? Go ahead, Daryl. Uh, I'm, I'm here. Yeah, go ahead. Is there anything in that poll that uh, indicates when that shift might happen? Well, you know, there's this old expression in uh, social science, nothing propinks like propinquity, which means nearness in space. So the closer you actually get to the disease itself, the more likely you are going to be worried about the physical uh, implications. So, for example, if if I know that my next door neighbor has it, mm-hmm. then I'm going to be much more likely to be afraid about my the health implications. But if you don't know anybody and nobody in your family has it, then it's the things that are uh, like I said before you know, in your bank account, which really seems to be uh, the other place that people are looking right now that haven't that has an effect. Yeah. So uh, it, it depends on how close it gets to you personally. Do we know what Canadians want to hear from government and public health officials? I just read that email from. Uh, our listener who said she wished she had there was more leadership in this country. What what do people what do Canadians want from 
the folks who are assigned and tasked and, uh, and, and apply, in many cases, applied for the job of being pragmatic managers of our affairs, what do they want? Well, not to be spun. I think that's the, the, the thing that, that comes out of most of the, the, the research that I do. Uh, governments these days have such a credibility issue. People have a very difficult time uh, listening to them and seeing what's being said as the truth. So, uh, you know, less communications uh, in terms of trying to communicate like government normally does and more actually talking to people and showing them what's going on and demonstrating uh, how uh, the government's actually dealing with it. So uh, talking about, you know, leaders talking about their feelings and how they feel about things, leave it out. Focus on the facts. And, and, and by the way, get out of the way and let the scientists talk because that's who people really find to be credible on these things. I'm sorry, say that again? Let the scientists talk. Okay, yeah, definitely. Uh, and and don't use words most of us can't understand. Well, and that's, that's the problem with scientists. They're not necessarily <laughs> the most communicative. And they're like engineers, too. I mean, you know, engineers, yeah. it's, you know, it's always 99% confidence, but that 1%, oh boy, I'm worried about it. Well, people, you know, they can sort of deal with uh, the probabilities. It's, it's okay to do that, but don't focus on the... You know, if there's like a 1% chance of something happening, focus on the 1%, which tends to be a bit of the problem, um, that we uh, we get obsessed about precision here, and people just want a little bit more information about direction. You know, basically, what should I expect tomorrow? What what what, what are the probabilities of me uh, having to deal with anything in particular, like, for example, an infection? Right. Uh, maybe this reaches back, this question reaches back to other polling you've done over the years, because I'm curious about how ready people are for the truth. Um, you know, we say we want to, we want the truth, we want to know what's going on, but how ready are we for the truth? Well, the problem is what version of the truth. So that's that's the difficulty that we have today. Yeah. Uh, is that you know, twenty years ago, uh, twenty five years ago, thirty years ago, when I first started into this, people had a real deference to authority. Uh, so if uh, you know uh, a political leader got up and said, you know, this is the truth. And, this is what you should do as a result. Yeah. The public did not feel that they were in any position to really challenge that. That is so true. And with the expansion of the internet and with the expansion of, in particular, education, so people are much more literate than they used to be, they feel much more empowered to make their own decisions about things, and they have more access to information than they ever, they've ever had. So whenever uh, they now are confronted with information, uh, they're reaction to it is, is rather than just believing it as they might have in the past, is to challenge it and be skeptical. So um, that, that means that, as I said before, to circle back on what we were talking about before, this effort about communicating about your feelings and how you should feel and, uh, you know, being sort of vague and not scientific is exactly the environment that a government creates that leads to problems with credibility. Okay. So the takeaway from the poll and your, your personal assessment of how people are responding in this country and elsewhere. The takeaway today on uh, this Saturday, uh, I have trouble sometimes remembering what, what, what day of the month it is because I'm looking at my program list and I have the wrong date on it. So I, I'm just guessing when I, when I try to tell you what day in March it is. But it, the takeaway right now is, is what? I think the takeaway is that people are really worried. They're not panicked but they want to know that the government is prepared and is ready if, if something is going to happen. Mm-hmm. And that's both from the perspective of what's happening economically, but probably more importantly over the midterm, what they're prepared to do in, in case something breaks out here in the country. So it's, it's about communicating facts and making sure that people who are actually expert as opposed to people who are you know, political communicators are the people who are telling the story. 
Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 